You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Almighty God, God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to stand in your holy presence because of what Jesus has done for us, because you sent your son to die in our place, to be in your presence as a sinful human in the presence of a holy God. We we should be dead, Lord, but we can stand in your presence and live, we can stand in your presence and be made alive because we have been given new life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that we would see you highly exalted, that we would see you as you truly are, that we would see ourselves as we truly are, who we are apart from you and who we are with you through Jesus Christ and by your spirit. And God, I pray that as your word is open, that you would speak so clearly and so powerfully, Lord all for your glory. God, we love you. We desperately need to hear from you. We need you to speak to us. So lead us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copy of God's word. And uh, we don't... um, we don't have pews. We're a portable church, which means we don't have pew Bibles. We just have awesome ushers. And so if you, uh, if you need a copy of the Bible, uh, we, we want everyone to be able to follow along. So just holler at them or raise your hand uh, so that you're able to uh, follow along in God's Word. We're in a series uh, called Never Give Up. And uh, we've been looking uh, at the life of Nehemiah. And uh, in, order to, uh, in order to really get a sense of where God's taking us in Nehemiah chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, I want us to, uh, to actually begin in the book of Proverbs. And so if you could turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Proverbs, and then we'll get to uh, Nehemiah in just a minute. The, the theme that's going to be running through this message is the idea of the fear of the Lord. The, the phrase fear of the Lord is going to appear, appear twice in the passage that we're going to look at today. The whole concept of fear or being afraid or being frightened is all over this uh, pass, uh, all over this passage of scripture in Nehemiah that we're going to get to. But look at Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 9 verse 10 says it's, it's the beginning of wisdom. What we're going to see when we get to Nehemiah is by the time we're done today, the wall's going to be finished. But I'm not sure if you've experienced this in your life. I'm still a young man, but I've seen it time and time again that the closer you get to the end, the closer you get to that ultimate victory, that final breakthrough, Those last few steps to cross that finish line are so often the hardest because the opposition gets so much more intensified. As I've been talking to people in our church, God has been working in us and through us as individuals and as a body together as we've been looking at this idea of never giving up, as we've been studying the life and legacy of Nehemiah, 
But at the same time, opposition has been hitting us like never before. And what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 5 and 6 is that the opposition is going to change its strategy. It's going to start coming in surprising ways. It's going to come from different angles. And there's such a need for wisdom, such a need for knowledge, because there's going to be so many instances where Nehemiah is asking, what do I do in this situation? And so many instances where we need to be asking, what do we do in this situation? But it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge, but what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, that's the theme of the book of Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, now look down at chapter 2, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of God is not not that you're afraid of God, but that the fear of God, as it's defined in chapter 2, is to love God's word, to believe his commands, to receive them as his good instruction to us. Then turn to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And so to fear the Lord is to love what God has said in his book. And to love his command and then to, in turn, hate that which goes against God's word. And we're going to see that in Nehemiah 5 and 6. And then I love, towards the end, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. And look at verse 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue In the fear of the Lord all the day, and I love this, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. To have the fear of the Lord is to know that there is a future. And Nehemiah, in chapter 5 and 6, you can turn there now, they are closer to the end than they have ever been. And yet the temptation to give up has never been more real. They are so close to being done the wall, but the the opposition is so confusing. The opposition is so intense. The battle is raging with so much strength that they almost give up. But surely there is a future. Surely there is a hope. And we should never give up. And so in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see here sort of the heading or the the main point of chapter 5. It's this, is that the fear of God is the foundation of our convictions. The fear of God is the foundation of our convictions. If you fear God, then you love his commands, as Proverbs 2 says. Now take a look at chapter 5 verse 1. Opposition is now going to come from the inside. Up until this point, all the opposition has come from the outside. Sanballat and Tobiah and all the enemies all around them. But in some ways, opposition on the outside caused them to be more united on the inside. You got priests working beside merchants. You got people carrying their swords with one hand and doing the work with the other hand. You've got people working together. But in chapter 5, opposition is going to come on the inside. And that unity that was so powerful and so strong in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's on the brink of falling apart in chapter 5. 
So as the wall is going up, chapter 5, verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This is an internal problem, not an outcry against some enemy out there, but a cry against the brother within the walls of the city. Here's why, verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were people who were just struggling to put food on the table, and they were trying to make ends meet. Then look at verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And so, and so you've got people who are struggling to put food on the table. You've got other people who are struggling. They've got to pay their bills. They've got a mortgage they need to pay. Then verse 4, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax and our fields and our vineyards. These people got bills to pay. They also got their, their taxes that they need to pay. These people are struggling economically. But their outcry is against their brothers. Look at verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now what What's happening here is it's very, very complicated. You've got, uh, you've got environmental factors in verse 3. It says that there was a famine. You've got economic factors in verse 4 where it says that people are in debt and they have mortgages uh, to pay. You've got political factors, taxation in verse 4. Social factors, you've got slavery in verse 5. Now this didn't happen overnight. Uh, Nehemiah had only been there a matter of months Uh, And so a famine doesn't come that quickly. People don't get themselves in this kind of debt that fast. And so what, what we find out here is this outcry comes in the middle of the building project, but Nehemiah is learning about something that was really months, even years in the making. This is what had been happening in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and the intensity of All of the farmers not working on their farm and now focused on building the wall. The concentration of all of the effort has brought these social, economic, environmental, political factors. It's all boiling over now. And if this doesn't go well, listen, they needed to be united to finish this wall. They got half their people guarding and half the people uh, working. And so... If they're divided against one another, something's going to give and the, the project is going to fall apart. Nehemiah is learning about this for the first time. His initial reaction is that he was very angry. Then in verse 7 it says, I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah knew the truth from James chapter 1 that the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And he didn't want to respond strictly out of anger. So he took counsel in and of himself. And then he took steps to deal with this, uh, really, uh, this crisis that the people were facing internally. Verse 7 says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest 
each from his brother. So he met with them initially, personally. And he, he talked to them about this issue of extracting interest because Nehemiah knew God's word and he knew that uh, one Jewish man was not allowed to charge interest on a loan to another Jewish man. That was against God's word. That was against his law. Let me show you a couple of places. Deuteronomy chapter twenty three nineteen on the screen here. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. That's exactly what Nehemiah says in in verse 7. You are exacting interest each from his brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Similarly, Exodus 22, verse 25, just two chapters after the Ten Commandments. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. And so these people, they're trying to put food on the table. They're trying to pay their bills. They're trying to pay their taxes. And so they went to people, the wealthy people, within the community and said, can you help us? And they said, sure, I can help you. And here's the interest rate. And, And here's how I'm going to actually profit from your misfortune. Here is how I'm actually going to benefit from what you're struggling with. This isn't bearing one another's burdens. This isn't acting like the family of God. This was contrary to God's word. So initially, he met with them personally and said, you are breaking God's law. Then it goes on in verse 7, he says, and I held a great assembly against them. So he met with them privately, but their sin was not merely private. Their sin was against specific people, many people in the community who were crying out against them. Some things can be dealt with privately behind closed doors. Other things, when people sin against other people, those other people need to be involved. And so they held a great assembly. And he, again, made clear that they were breaking God's word. Verse 8, I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And Nehemiah is saying, this is, don't you, don't you see the irony here? Don't you see how backwards this is? We have returned to Jerusalem so that we could be free. We were over, we were exiled in Babylon and then the Persians have sent us home. We were slaves over there. Now we're supposed to be free and you have done something based on your greed, based on your selfishness. You now are enslaving your own brothers and see the repetition of the word brothers. Verse, twice in verse 8, once in verse 7, once in verse 5, once in verse 1. God's people are supposed to be a family. And Nehemiah says, this is not right what you've been doing. Look at verse 9. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not, notice this, to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies. Nehemiah just looks them boldly in the eye and says, what you're doing is not good. Why was he able to do that? Because the foundation of his conviction was the fear of God. Nehemiah didn't tell them, what you're doing is not good because, oh, you know, it just bothers me personally. 
or it's contrary to public opinion. He says what you're doing is not good because what you're doing does not line up with the word of God and is not in line with the fear of God. That's the basis on which he says what you're doing is not good. Listen, we live in a society where no one is telling anyone what you're doing is not good. Everyone is just saying, just do whatever you want to do. Why? Why do we live in a world where no one is confronting one another? Why do we live in a world where words like not good or words like ought aren't part of our vocabulary? Where where everyone just says, do your own thing. Believe what you want to believe. Act how you want to act. Why do we live in a world like that? Because we live in a world that doesn't fear God. And Nehemiah here sets us a, a... A terrific example. Walk in the fear of our God. What you're doing is not good. May we be a community of believers that lives like Nehemiah lived. That when we see something in someone's life that is not good, that we have the courage to say it. And that we have Bibles open, plank removed from I. Heart in a, in a place of humility and love to come to someone and say, what you're doing is not good. Walk in the fear of our God. May we be a community in our small groups, in our ministries, in our relationships, in our marriages, where we can lovingly confront someone to correct them and tell them that they're doing something that's wrong. Nehemiah sets us an incredible example. He says, walk in the fear of our God, in verse 9, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. There's the people looking in, seeing what's happening, all this great city's being built, and it's supposed to be this righteous place, and they're looking and saying, these people are no different than us. Look how greedy they are. Look how selfish they are. Verse 10, Nehemiah says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them lending them money and grain. So Nehemiah says, listen, I'm making a loan, but I'm making loans biblically. I'm following God's uh, command. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. We need, to, we need to walk in the fear of God. At this particular meeting, when Nehemiah is talking about interest and the fear of God, he probably had the scroll that he opened up was probably Leviticus chapter 25. Look at what Leviticus chapter 25 says. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. Don't benefit from someone's hardship. It says, but fear your God. It's the fear of God. That's how we know what we should do or what we shouldn't do. That's how we know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. He goes on to say, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner, for they are all my servants. They all belong to God. They don't belong to you. Whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessness, but you shall say it with me, fear your God. The fear of God is the foundation of our convictions. This is how we know what's right and what's wrong. This is how we know what's true and what's false. The world out there has no leg to stand on. 
There's no foundation. There's no reason to believe anything. There's no reason to hold anyone accountable for anything because there's no fear of God. God says you shouldn't own your brother as a slave because I own that person. When you take the fear of God out of a society, out of a culture, when you take the fear of God out of a church, scary things happen. When you don't fear God, you do horrible things to people made in the image of God. That's the six o'clock news. People who don't fear God do horrible things who are made in the image of God, who belong to God. And so Nehemiah lays it out there. Listen, he, he sets such an amazing example, but I believe there's an even better example. Keep reading, verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentages of money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. He says, make it right. Today is the day to make it right. Verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So Nehemiah is a great example of giving correction, but there is a better example here. The nobles are an incredible example of receiving correction. I've said this time and time again. How you respond when you realize you've done something wrong is the most important thing about you. Let's be honest with ourselves here. It's not a question of if we sin sometime in the future. It's when we sin sometime in the future. And we're going to be blind to it. We're not going to see it. And someone is going to show it to us. They're going to have to lovingly confront us and correct us. We might not like how they do it. But how you respond in that moment is so crucial to who you are as a person. And these nobles set an incredible example. They were doing something wrong. They didn't know it. Nehemiah came to them with the word of God and said, what you're doing is not good. Change your ways. And listen, they could have made all kinds of excuses. Nehemiah, you've only been here a few days. What do you know? This is something that goes back years. You need to understand the the history here. You don't understand the economics of, you've been living in Persia this whole time. They could have had all of these excuses. But instead they say, is that what the word of God says? If that's what the word of God says, then I need to do that. And they respond with so much humility, so much sincerity. They know they've done something wrong and they choose to make it right. They walk in repentance. That's such a crucial example. So may we be a church that gives correction and that also receives correction. May we be that kind of a people. And so the the rest of this uh, section here from uh, verse 12 down to verse 13. He, Nehemiah sort of formalizes things. He ha- has them swear an oath uh, to confirm, yes, we will do what we've said we've done. And then in verse 14 to, to 19, Nehemiah explains how he handled his own finances with integrity and with generosity. I just want you to look at verse uh, 15. It says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, And took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. 
Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so, again, look at, because of the fear of God. Nehemiah, because he was a governor, uh, he served as governor for 12 years, because he was uh, the governor of this area, he had all kinds of perks. He had, uh, he had a regular, um, um, regular amounts of, of funds that were being sent his way from the king of Persia. He had a regular salary. He was also expected to lay burdens on the people. He was supposed to collect a tax himself, not for infrastructure, like our taxes, but just to make him more wealthy. And he just refused to. And the reason why he refused to was because of the fear of God. That is the foundation of our convictions. And so there was an an internal problem that Nehemiah had to deal with. And it was the fear of God that gave him the wisdom to do that. And listen, the, the, the construction of the wall almost came to a screeching halt. But God used Nehemiah, used the fear of God, used wisdom to allow things to continue. So the fear of God is is the foundation of our convictions. Also make note of this. The fear of God is the source of our courage. The fear of God is the source of our courage. Look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. So here are the enemies The enemies know that the wall is very close to being completed. They tried mocking the people. Oh, even if a fox were to try to stand on the wall, it'd come collapsing down. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to build it in a day? Mocking didn't work. They tried to threaten the people. We're going to attack you by night. We're going to destroy what you've been trying to do. That didn't work. And so now what do they try? Now the strategy changes. The end goal, stopping the construction of the wall, is the same. But now they're taking a different strategy. Hey, let's just come to a meeting. And rather than challenging Nehemiah, and rather than trying to just flat out defeat him or destroy him or kill him, what they're trying to do is have him to compromise. Just meet us halfway. The plain of uh, Ono, that was about halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem. And let's just, let's just meet halfway. You see, here's the thing about Satan. Sometimes Satan comes at us and, he, and the temptation is so right in front of our face. It's so blatant. He's, he's tempting us to do evil. That's one way that he tries to attack us. Other ways that he tries to attack us are a lot more subtle, a lot more clandestine, a lot more undetectable. But for whatever reason, Nehemiah knew that this was not a good meeting for him to go to. If you look at the, at the end of verse 2, he says, But they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah had wisdom. He had discernment because he was walking in the fear of God. He knew that there was no room for compromise. And I love his wording here, verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying... I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He says, I'm doing a great work. 
And here at Harvest Bible Chapel, we're involved in a great work. And the great work involves the great commission, which is making disciples. And the great work involves the greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. And we are, we are unashamedly inviting everyone who comes through these doors to join us in this great work. And if you're here today and you find yourself continually compromising, continually being lured into the ways of this world and the ways of sin, maybe the reason why you're continually lured into those things is because you have nothing better to do. And what we are trying to do is offer you something better to do. We are offering you to join into this great work. Yeah, I could join into that, jo- that juicy gossip conversation over there, but I'm doing a great work. I could entertain those lustful thoughts, but I'm doing a great work. I don't have time for that. I could become overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, but I'm actually, I'm doing a great work right now. I could focus on greed and building my own empire, but I'm doing a great work. I'm making disciples. I'm involved in building the church of Jesus Christ. I'm doing a great work. I love his response. They didn't take no for an answer, though, in verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Sometimes you just got to keep saying the same thing. The temptation just keeps coming. Verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So that's like a blog post, okay? It's, it's written to Nehemiah, but it's online. It's for everybody to see. And so the letter is open, so everyone that it changes hands with, everyone's allowed to read it. It's intended for as many people as possible to read it. Verse 6, in it was written, It is reported among the nations and Geshem. Every kind of gossipy letter always says, I feel this way about what's going on, and there's a lot of other people who agree with me. And so he, he says all the nations, and oh, he drops the name of Geshem, who was an influential leader and also an opponent to what God was doing. It says, it also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king, that's King Artaxerxes, will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. So Nehemiah wouldn't go to the meeting. And now they say, well, we're we're hearing these rumors. And uh, hey, listen, we wouldn't want these rumors to to make their way all the way back to King Artaxerxes. Uh, But if you don't come and meet with us, we're going to write a letter directly to King Artaxerxes. And we're going to get you in trouble, Nehemiah. We're going to say that you're rebelling. We're going to say that you are uh, becoming uh, a king, that you're establishing these prophets. Lie after lie after lie. The threat to, to come and to have this meeting. But I love verse 8. Then I sent to him saying... Uh, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. So much of fighting the spiritual battle is recognizing what's a lie and recognizing what's true. You are inventing them out of your own mind. Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us. 
They, the whole intention was to frighten Nehemiah and all of the people. That's why they have this, this open letter. We're going to go tell King Artaxerxes on you. We're going to make you afraid. We're going to force you to do what we want you to do. But because they had the fear of God, they did not give in to fear. I love this uh, quote from uh, Oswald Chambers. Um, it says, uh, the remarkable thing about fear is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It's the fear of God that sets you free from all other fears. Because when you fear God, you understand that God loves you with a perfect love. And First John 4 says that perfect love casts out fear. Nehemiah knew that God was with him. And he knew that if, if Sanballat tried to a, appeal to a higher power to King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah knew that he had a higher power, that he had the, the king of kings, that he had God on his side. They wanted to frighten us, verse 9, thinking their, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Then we see opposition come from, from another angle. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. And so he goes and he meets with this, with this man who tells him that he has this inside information that there's, a, there's an assassination, a plot against Nehemiah. And he says there's the, the, only, the only safe place for you to go would be inside the temple. They'll never look for you there, but they'll track you down. They'll kill you in the middle of the night. Verse 11, but I said, should such a man as I run away? Should I be a coward and flee? And then he says, And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And then verse 12 says, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Shemaiah was actually a prophet. And it was sort of understood that oh, Shemaiah had this sense from God, this word from God that he needed to tell Nehemiah that God is telling you to go into the temple and to protect yourself because of this assassination plot that's coming on you tonight. But Nehemiah, so clearly, how did he know? In verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Here's how he understood. The he was telling him to go into the temple. Nehemiah's response in verse 11 says, could such a man as I go into the temple and live? You see, the Bible makes it very clear that the only people who could uh, go into the temple were descendants of Levi. The only people who could go out right into the temple were descendants of Aaron. Nehemiah was not from that tribe. He was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He's not allowed. He would be breaking God's law in going into the temple. So no prophet could be telling him to do something that is contrary to God's revealed word. Listen, there's a lot of people on television claiming to be prophets. There's a lot of people in this city 
claiming to be prophets. We need wisdom. We need knowledge. We need discernment in order to determine, are they legitimate prophets? Are they actually speaking for God? Well, here's the, here's the easiest test. Is what they're saying as a prophecy, is it in line with God's word or is it contradicting God's word? And, and Nehemiah knew for sure that this guy can't be legit because he's telling me to disobey God's word. God would never command you to disobey his command. That's just not who God is. But look at verse 12. It says, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. Check this out. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. <laughs> This guy was claiming to be a prophet, but he's reading from a script that the enemies of God had given him. So Nehemiah is not only facing opposition on the outside and opposition on the inside, he's also facing opposition on the outside and the inside at the same time because they're working together. Look with me down at at verse 17. It says, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Now, why would they be sending letters to Tobiah? He's one of the enemies. Letters saying, hey, knock it off, Tobiah. Leave Nehemiah alone, Tobiah. Leave us alone, Tobiah. Why are they writing letters to him? And then it says, and Tobiah's letters came to them. So they're writing, so they're pen pals. Pen pals with the enemy. Why? What's going on? Why is this correspondence taking place? Verse 18, for many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, unequally yoked in some sort of a business relationship. And it goes even deeper than that. Check this out. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Not only did he have these oaths, these business relationships, he also had a Jewish noble as a father-in-law. He also had the son of a Jewish noble as a son-in-law. Compromise. Compromise. The marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, and the the parent who doesn't have the wisdom to say, what you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? These were people who should have known better. The person mentioned in in verse 17, it said he had taken the daughter of Meshulam. You could just write in the margin of your Bible, Chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 40, Meshulam was one of the best builders of the wall. He's one of those people like the Tekoites who not only built one section, Meshulam built two sections. He was so committed to God and what God was doing and yet he compromised and allowed his own daughter to marry an unbeliever. To, to marry someone who was vocally and visibly opposed to the work of God. And check this out, verse 19. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. 
These nobles were always trying to tell Nehemiah, Tobiah's not so bad, man. You just misunderstand him. He's a really good guy. And Nehemiah said, he's our enemy. And then it says, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So they're acting as spies. That the place where Nehemiah was placing the guards and the, the times in which those guards would change and the different points of weakness in the wall. These nobles were reporting everything Nehemiah was saying to the enemy. And then I love this. And Tobiah sent letters to me to make me afraid. And so there's these letters going back. The nobles are writing letters to Tobiah. Tobiah's writing letters to the nobles. And the nobles are saying, Tobiah's not such a bad guy. Look at this letter. Look what he's writing. Nehemiah all the time is getting these letters from from Tobiah being like, I'm going to destroy you. And I'm your enemy. And it's over. And I'm trying to make you afraid. Listen. God could have chose anyone to build the wall. And Nehemiah is not just about the wall. It's about the people. These are the kinds of people who rebuilt the wall. People who were so greedy and so selfish that actually looked at someone who was so vulnerable and so needy and used that as an opportunity to better themselves. God chose those kinds of people to build the wall. God chose the kinds of people who rather than making a clear division between what God's word says and who God's people are, were continually compromising with the flesh and the world and the enemy. God chose those people to be involved in this great work. And God's chosen us. Because we're Nehemiah 5 and 6. We're greedy, we're selfish, we're compromised. And yet God has called us to build something. And God has called us that in the process of building that he would build us up as well. Are you you ready for some good news? (laughs) Because this has been a little bit of a, a negative one here. But look at verse 15. And we close here. In the midst of all of this, all this compromise, all this opposition, people betraying Nehemiah left and right. One second they're building the wall, the next second they're helping someone else tear it down. I love it in verse 15, in the middle of all of it. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elo in 52 days. God took this ragtag people that at some moments were so united and so committed and at other moments were so compromised and so divided. God took this ragtag group of people and did unbelievable things through them and to them. Verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of all of it, all the nations around were afraid. We're not afraid, they're afraid. And fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived, notice this, they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The outsiders who were trying to make them afraid, now they're the ones who are afraid. 
Because they tried to do everything they could to stop it. They tried mocking. They tried threatening. They tried using people on the inside, using people on the outside. But they just couldn't stop what God was doing. And at the end of the day, all they could recognize is that this isn't just a human thing that's happening here. What's happening here has been done with the help of God Almighty. And may God look at your life. And may God look at your family. And may God look at our church. And may God say that what is, or may people around you say, what is happening here can only be explained because God is in it. And God is working. Because God finishes what he starts. These people, these broken people were used to rebuild a broken wall and God had a plan to rebuild them in the process, to free them of their greed, to free them of their selfishness, to free them of their compromise and to live completely for him so that the walls could be strong and that the people could be strong. God finishes what he starts. And when we think about him finishing what he starts. This isn't just what he started 52 days and then he finished it. No, this is something that he started in in creation. And this is something that he is committed to finishing. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, and as we think about this Sunday and coming to the Lord's table and taking the cup that symbolizes his blood and the the bread that symbolizes his body. And as we think about Nehemiah chapter 5 and 6, you know, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of rumors going around about Nehemiah. The open letter said, hey, you're a king, aren't you? You're a king trying to lead a rebellion. Oh, you're, you're, you should go into the temple. Nehemiah says, listen, I'm not a priest. I can't go in the temple. I'm not a king. I'm not leading a rebellion. But what Nehemiah did was setting the stage for someone to come to Jerusalem. And rumors were going to spread about him. Rumors that he was a king who was leading a rebellion. And Jesus said to Pilate, he said, yeah, I'm a king. I'm just, my kingdom's not of this world. And when Jesus suffered and died on the cross... Uh, on his, on his cross was the inscription, Jesus, King of the Jews. And Nehemiah, the, I can't go into the temple. I, I'm no priest. Jesus came. He wasn't just a king. He was also a priest. He's our great high priest who cleansed the temple of everything that had uh, defiled it, and who, when he suffered and died on the cross, he wasn't just the priest, he was also the lamb that was sacrificed. And when he suffered and died, that very temple that Nehemiah couldn't enter into, and that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, Jesus, when he said it is finished, that veil that separated the very presence of God was torn in two. God finishes what he starts and he has made a way for us to be rebuilt to be restored to be made new through his son Jesus Christ and this is who we remember when we take these symbols in our hands and so let's pray as we 
um, prepare uh, for this moment. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that he came to show that he's king, that he rules over all. That he not only rules over us, Lord, but he rules over disease, he ruled over death, he ruled over creation. All of his miracles pointed to him as king over the whole universe because he upholds the world by the word of his power. And he came as a priest. Someone who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Someone who is tempted in every way and yet was, was without sin. Someone who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That one pure sacrifice offered once for all for us. And so God, we thank you that you have committed to finish what we start or what you've started. We thank you that you have come to us in all of our sin all of our fear, all of our greed, all of our lust. And you have come and you have changed us and you are changing us by your grace from one degree of glory to another. And God, I pray that you would be with us in this moment as we seek to remember what Jesus has done for us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.